At MSA, your health and safety drive is to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as an athletic gear for firefighters, Athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your turnout gear. Get the full story at msafire.com slash globe. Hello and welcome to Today on Firehouse. This is Peter Matthews. I'm the editor of Firehouse. And today we've got Gary Ludwig, who's president of the IAFC, as well as fire chief in Champaign, Illinois, uh, for our guest. And, and we're going to talk with Gary about what's going on with the IAFC, as well as um, COVID and how that agency is kind of taking the lead to um, make sure the fire service is being heard at the local and uh, national levels. So Gary, uh, welcome. And if you want to just tell uh, some of the audience about yourself, uh, you know, who you are, what you do at IFC, and also just a reminder, Gary was a longtime uh, columnist for Firehouse with the EMS column. Well, good morning, Pete. It's, uh, it's great to join you this morning. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I uh, wrote that column in Firehouse for 22 years. And uh, so that was one of the uh, milestones of my career that I always look back on, I reflect on, and I'm very proud of. Uh, as you said, I'm currently the president of the International Association of Fire Chiefs, and I'm also honored and blessed to be the fire chief here in Champaign, Illinois. I got 42 years in this profession. I actually started my career in St. Louis just about two months out of high school. I was 18 years old and spent 25 years there. And uh, my other uh, significant career opportunity was when I was a deputy fire chief in Memphis for 10 years ran uh, that EMS system down there in Memphis. And so I went from Memphis to uh, now where I'm at currently in Champaign. And uh, so uh, those are the kind of highlights of my career. I've been a paramedic also for 40 years and uh, out of my 42-year career. And uh, there's a lot more, but uh, I'm just honored and blessed to be in this profession with so many outstanding professionals, including yourself. Thank you, Gary. It's, it's great to have you on and, and you know, watch – uh, everything that you've been doing, um, you know, keep it updated with you on social media. Um, again, your your role with IAFC. So can you, can you tell us a little bit uh, for the folks who don't know what the International Association of Fire Chiefs is or they're aware of it, but they don't understand it completely. Can you tell us what the IAFC is and also your role as president? That's a one-year role. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Uh, the International Association of Fire Chiefs is a uh, predominantly an organization that represents our nation's fire chiefs, but there's many other members as a, as a part of that group, including chief officers within associations. And we also have a company officer section that, uh, you know, if, if, you know, I guess if you look at it, our role is as leaders is to mentor those that are coming up and prepare those that will be stepping into the roles behind us. And so that company officer section is about leadership development and, and representing those company officers will be coming up. So we're about 13,000 members strong, and that is not only in the United States, but we also have a Canadian division also. And then we have members all over the world, including Europe and Asia, and uh, Africa, South America, uh, virtually on every continent except for Antarctica. That's incredible. That's great reach. Um, Okay. All right. So let's dive into COVID here a little bit. so the 30,000-foot view, can you tell us what you're seeing through the IFC? I mean, you, 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 as an agency, you have all these dashboards that you're updating 
uh, it seems like 24-7. So kind of what's the 30,000-foot view for the fire service when it comes to COVID-19 as far as uh, folks that are um, or, or responders who have been uh, quarantined, um, uh, tested positive for COVID? And we'll talk about financial impact here in a little bit. But overall, what's the what's the 30,000-foot view of what's going on for the fire service right now? So um, we, as I like to say, are the warriors on the tip of the spear of this battle. And uh, as I've been telling the news media, you know, when you see on TV all the wonderful work that our nurses and doctors are doing inside the emergency rooms and also inside those hospital floors, those patients got there somehow. And how they got there was predominantly through the fire service, since we're the largest providers of EMS in this country. We're the ones that are treating carrying and transporting these patients to the hospital. And, you know, that's not only our ambulances, but it's also those first responders out there on those engines. And so we are at the tip of the spear on this battle. And so we have been hit economically and operationally in so many different ways. You know, you look at the operations side of it, you know, we've had that I know of that we've been able to document at least 19 fire and EMS deaths. Um, our dashboards reflect over a thousand firefighters have been infected with this. We've also uh, know that we've had at least over 5,000 firefighters that have been quarantined. So when you start looking at the operational impact, uh, that is, you know, uh, a good snapshot of it. And then you add in the fact that we're not getting PPE. Uh, there's a reason why those people are dying and there's a reason why our firefighters are getting infected. Uh, you, the lack of PPE and then the economic side of this whole thing, you know, as fire chiefs, we're looking at our budgets and going, oh, my gosh, you know, look at this. It's, you know, I'm paying out all this overtime. I'm shopping on the open market trying to get PPE for my employees to protect them. I'm paying exorbitant prices for these things. Um, the list of stuff goes on and on. And, uh, and then, you know, the economic side of this is I'm already hearing from fire chiefs around the country that they themselves have been furloughed. I know of one fire chief that's been already told he's going to be furloughed one day a week. And I thought, well, that's not too bad. Then about 30 seconds later, it hit me. I started doing the calculations in my head. I'm like, oh, my God, it's a 20% pay cut for you then. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm hearing from fire chiefs that their city managers are, have already told them, start preparing for layoffs. Give me scenarios of what your department looks like. Yeah. 5, 10, 15, 20% less employees. And I know in some cases, firefighters already have been furloughed and have laid off. Our uh, president of the Illinois Firefighters Association, which is one of my captains, he represents all the union members here in Illinois. You know, he's, he's already calculating, it looks like about 1,500 layoffs here in Illinois uh, because of the state governments. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not state, but local governments, they have not been able to bring in tax revenue. So, we're hit, you know, summing up, Pete, we are getting smacked more than ever with operational and economic issues, and that's a look from the 30,000-foot level. Yeah, and that's a good point as far as, the, you know, the tax revenue not coming in, taxes and fees. Um, you know, in the beginning when, when this was kind of coming up, we were talking about it internally, is what is this going to mean for the fire service, you know, six months or a year from now? And it really just depends on how long it goes. But for some folks uh, who, who aren't necessarily aware of, you know, the money just doesn't appear, right? The fire department just doesn't have a $3 million budget. There's there's a, a reason they have a budget, and then there's places they get the money from. And obviously, every every department's different. You know, you, you've got taxing districts, you've got municipalities. 
Um, then you have those on the volunteer side who are literally, you know, waiting on fundraisers to happen. And we've had a couple of articles about that where volunteer departments are, you know, fearing a, a shortage of, of money this year over the lack of uh, fundraisers they can hold. But the tax revenue is, is huge, and that's that's funding everything from personnel to, to the equipment. Um, and the layoffs, I mean, I, I can – Tell you, I've heard from seven or eight chiefs at this point who are are talking about the same thing that you know it's that's going to be their biggest challenge um, is is trying to justify having these people uh, that you know firefighters and medics on the street um, when now the run numbers are down right and that's that's what one chief told me was the city manager said well the calls are down he said, well the, the calls are down now it's not long term it's just it's the current situation. He goes, well, based on what we're seeing right now, your call numbers are down. You don't need as many people. But what if this happens again? What if this situation happens again, but you can't justify getting rid of firefighters um, for a, a four-month slowdown uh, when you've needed them the rest of the time? So, you know, as far as that for Chiefs, I mean, what are some suggestions you have or, you know, what is the IFC trying to do there to – uh, ensure that layoffs don't happen just because there's been a, a, a months-long uh, decline in, in city revenues or municipality revenues. Sure. So, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the issue of volunteer fire departments because I'm hearing from those chiefs also that run volunteer and combination departments, and you're right. They have been unable to fundraise, uh, and they are getting hit. It's not only the sales tax side and the other revenue side for municipal governments, but it's the those fire departments that are volunteer that rely on donations. And so they're, uh, they're facing the same challenges. So I'm glad you brought those up. And so, so whether you're a volunteer combination or a career department, it remains that you're going to get, get hit financially. And so one of the things that we are doing that I have, I, I have advocated for, and I wrote a letter to president Trump on the 13th. And also we got sent copies, got sent to all the leaders, in Congress on the House and uh, the, the Senate side, whether they were majority or minority leaders, um, that we are getting hit with this in untold numbers. And uh, while they are stimulating business and, and also the hospitals with their with the CARES Act and also this 3.5 stimulus bill, they need to realize what is happening to our fire departments at this level. And as I'd like to tell people, you know, we wouldn't cut our military in the middle of a war. We wouldn't reduce the number of soldiers out there. And so why would we ever conceivably do this with the fire service? And that's what we're doing right now. And so we need help from Congress. I've requested in my letter $5 billion, and we think that's just a small number for what we're calculating might be needed. In $5 billion in AFG, uh, our existence of firefighter grants, and $5 billion in our safer programs. And so we're not trying, as I tell when I talk to, I've talked to six different House or Senate Appropriations Committee so far. I've had conference calls with the White House staff, conference calls with the undersecretaries and assistant secretaries in the Department of Homeland Security. Um, again, with the same message of what we're getting hit with economically and operationally. And then I'm asking for them to support um, the next stimulus bill that coming into Congress that the fire service needs to be uh, you know, supported with the federal dollars. We need that. I'm, I'm, that is something that, that we as fire departments, whether you're volunteer combination or career or need. And so I'm hoping that we'll be successful. I'm hoping, uh, you know, as I tell them, we're not asking 
on the safer program. We're not asking for new firefighters up and above what we already have. I'm asking for to retain the existing levels of firefighters that we currently have. I'm asking for dollars there for recruitment and retention for volunteer fire departments so they can recruit and retain those volunteer firefighters that Mm -hmm. they currently have. We're not trying to add, we're just trying to maintain. And so those are things that the IFC is working on uh, at these levels to try to get funding in the next bill. And it's it's very heartening to hear uh, some of our leaders in Congress, um, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Steny Hoyer, and, uh, and many other representatives on the House floor talking about the need that we need to take care and help our firefighters out there. That's, that's good to hear. I'm glad they realized that. Um, you know, the military, you know, talking about the military, right, it's, that's nationally funded, federally funded, so it's a little bit easier um, to understand. But when you have all these different departments at the local level who, again, are finding funding in who knows how many different uh, means, um, the article that we ran, we ran an article from Chip Jewell. It's called Sound the Alarm, and I'll put a link to it in the podcast. Uh, it's called Sound the Alarm, VFDs Face Financial Disaster After COVID-19. Um, <clears throat> we published that on a Friday afternoon, and by Sunday, it was one of the most read pieces of content we've had on the site in a long time. And he's just really just, it, it's, it's, a, it's a high-level view of what's going on, but it's the reality of what's happening for volunteer departments right now. And we've done a couple of other stories. You know, chicken barbecues that are being canceled, that means that fuel's not going to be able to get purchased, or, you know, PPE purchases are going to have to hold up. And, um, you know, I know a couple of folks in New York who have, you know, had to really decide what they have to do. They've got events coming up in May and June. And, you know, they're there for the community safety. And, and normally that's responding to calls or, you know, preventing fires through community risk reduction, but now it's not holding their fundraiser with the potential um, to spread COVID. So um, it's interesting that the, the, the impact on every community is so different, um, whether or not you even have cases of COVID in your community, but that, that's a different story. So, um, so, so as far as the economic impact and the feedback you guys are hearing, the IFC, what's, um, do you have any projections at this point? I saw you do have an economic uh, impact dashboard, um, and you're kind of collecting that. What, what's the, I guess, what are the factors that go into those dollar amounts that are being shown there? Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so, you know, we're basically asking chiefs to go to our, our impact dashboard economically and fill that out. It's a survey, and it kind of gives you an overview of, what it, we're getting hit with uh, you locally at your department. So then once you you know you compile all that stuff, it gives us a better view um, economically of the impact. And so uh, the numbers I looked at, on, I haven't looked this morning, I'll look right now while we're speaking, but the numbers we were looking at on Friday was about 1% of fire departments were reporting and we were already looking of future economic loss to fire departments at around $400 million. And so you parlay that out to the National Fire Service, which is about 30,000 fire departments nationwide, and you extrapolate those numbers out, and we're probably looking at 40 to $45 billion impact to the fire service and economically on, on revenue loss that we need just to operate our departments out there. And uh, so you see when you have that type of impact, um, the, the five billion I'm asking for in safer and the five billion I'm asking for in AFG doesn't even scratch the surface. And uh, and so I don't know if we'll be successful in Congress or not, 
But uh, at the same time, you know, we're going to certainly try to do what we can. I'm looking at the dashboard right now. And um, so departments have added information in there since Friday and uh, the 2020 losses. Now, currently, again, this is probably about 1% reporting, about $470 million in lost revenue to the fire departments. And then we're looking at what's going to look like in 2021 because we know that the economic impact is going to you know, hit us into the future here. And that looks about $547 million. I know that there uh, there are three fire departments in Northern Virginia there alone that have entered data, and combined their uh, their tax loss revenue is around a hundred million dollars right now to their fire department. Wow. So, so uh, you know this is this is you know it's great that we're stimulating again businesses and uh, you know they put uh, all that money into the, the PPP, which is the payroll protection program, and uh, all those other things. But there's the you know, there is the other side of the house in this country, and there is the the private business side, which we fully support, and and uh, the money they put in there for hospitals and all that stuff. But the other part of it is is that we have to have a ready response force in our communities, ready to go for the next local emergency, regional ca- ca- catastrophe, or uh, hopefully not again another national disaster like this. But but we have to have a ready response force in our communities. You know, when you call nine one one, you expect someone to show up. And uh, and so that is why it's so important that, again, we continue to reach in the Congress and preach our message of the funding that we need, not to add jobs, but just to retain current positions. Exactly. Yeah, and that, that's. Um, that's a tough spot. That's a tough spot for you guys to be in in order to uh, to be able to, to, to justify those positions that have been there for the public safety for the public's safety, I'm sorry. Um, and so as I'll just add, it's so disheartening. I'll just add one more final thought. It's so disheartening to hear our Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, say that there will be no bailouts for local government or state governments. And I'm like, really? So you want state and local governments to fail? Is, is that the concept? And so I certainly hope that he rethinks his position. Yeah. I, I haven't heard that, but... Uh... Yeah, that's not the way to go at this point. That's the the root of everything that we have going on here in this country. So, um, okay. So at the IAFC, you mentioned that that there's a a true incident command system in place. Can you just tell us what IAFC is doing as far as their um, incident command for the COVID nineteen response and 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 how the staff is is working to collect data, mess, you know, send messages out to its members, um, and assess and survey what's going on? Sure. Um, we, uh, we, we have not been reactionary to this. Um, I actually ramped up our COVID task force on, um, we actually, well, let me go back, even back to February 1st, we actually were putting up an impact dashboard on our website, and then um, that was also showing the impact not only nationally but worldwide there's tracking cases it was a live esri map that was connected to i think john hopkins university with their with their data and um and so we were also putting up their best recommended practices from the cdc and also the world health organization from their website we had links there also then uh, as this continued to escalate on February 29th, I actually ramped up a COVID operational t- task force headed up by Chief John Sinclair out of Washington State. And um, 
that task force was tasked with uh, basically, you know, preparing the association for what was to come and also pushing out information to our members and all the facets of what's going on with this COVID-19. They, um, they have a whole host of subject matter experts on there, including issues or including people who have knowledge of supply chain issues. Uh, we have we actually have members of United States Fire Administration on there. Um, we have just a whole technology data people. The list goes on and on. And so they've done a wonderful job. And if you look at our IFC COVID-19 tests, I'm sorry, uh, webpage, there is just a ton of links there, and a ton of resources and a ton of other information there. And one of the big things I know they're tapping right now is uh, all the fake N95s that are coming in. There's a lady on that task force. Her name is Dr. Christina Baxter. And uh, she is an expert when it comes to analyzing these fake 95s. And so they actually have been doing a webinar actually every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And um, and so there is, are there are always somebody on somebody on there talking about this. So so we we start up the COVID nineteen uh, task force on February twenty ninth, and then uh, since then I've also tasked uh, the economic task force, which is headed up by Steve uh, Steve I'm sorry Chief Steve Pegram out of Bagashan, Ohio, and he has a whole host of uh, subject matter experts also on that task force. And uh, we're looking at the economic impact of the currently and then what's going on in the future. We're pushing out information to our members and to our chiefs about uh, where you can apply for disaster uh, relief at this point. The, the, there's $20, $45 billion in the disaster relief fund. We also uh, have been working with uh, the, the grant directed, directorate of uh, FEMA to actually push out the AFG. There's been $100 million that was allocated in the um, in the CARES Act for the fire service, and that's all going to be P for PPE. Uh, we actually have an operations center that is fully functional operating at the IFC in our executive conference center, where we have plans officers, operations officers, we have media. And the other interesting aspect of that is that we also have a legislative component branch of that. We have three full-time employees at the IFC. That's all they do is work on Capitol Hill advocating for our members and for the fire service. These aren't law firm or lobby firm people. These are actually employees of the IFC uh, who go up there and they advocate on legislation. They kick doors open and get us in there to start talking to our nation's leaders about what are the impacts uh, to the fire service on this economically and operationally. So the IFC is so engaged on so many different levels and we're doing every, everything we can to lead from the front for not only our members for the fire service as a whole and so we've had many good conversations i know i've talked to at least six different senate or appropriations committees now trying to get them to put funding into the next stimulus bill i've had a near long conversation a nearly long hour long conversation with um fema director uh, pete gainer and uh, we expressed all our issues there with ppe and other things like that that was a only supposed to be a half hour. We actually went about an hour, which I'm blessed and honored to um, that he gave us that type of time. That is great. And, uh, you know, that was great that Pete did that because I know I can't even imagine. You know, I told myself, you must be running on fumes because of all the hours that you're putting in. Uh, we've, had a, we've had engagement with the National Governors Association uh, because we know that even though FEMA prioritizes us as firefighters and paramedics for PPE in the supply chain and strategic national stockpile, that it's state, state some, some states, not all, 
are reprioritizing us. And, and I've had uh, chiefs tell me they've talked to their state health officials who said, you are not the priority. The priority is the hospitals and the healthcare workers. They will get the equipment. And that's wrong. So I, I, I could talk for an hour, Pete, about all the things that we're doing, the IOC. But um, I'd like to think that we're uh, honored to have a great staff there at the IOC who is uh, helping us to lead, educate, and serve our members. Well, it, it, it sounds like you're definitely taking the, the lead, you know, on a national level and, and on so many aspects. Again, it's like anything else with COVID. You, you talk about the, um, you know, some statistics, but every time there's a statistic, there's a there's a couple of uh, roads that lead off of that statistic that lead to, you know, avenues to courts. And it's just, it's this just root system. Um, there's so many different aspects to look at. Anytime you look at one component of the impact of COVID, um, so you, you mentioned about the PPE and, and how at the state level, you know, healthcare and, and um, the hospitals are, are the priority. So is that why, I mean, we've had a number of stories that we've posted and we've actually, we haven't posted them all just because we've seen the story over and over again at this point. So that's why FEMA is essentially grabbing supplies that are going to fire departments because it's needed at, the hospital facilities is that what that would likely come from then so uh when we talked with pete gainer he said they are not grabbing supplies or redirecting or seizing okay. supplies he was he was adamant about that and um and he said um i should say he said they're not seizing or confiscating he said now what they may be doing um is directing equipment to hot spots so that's stuff that's already in the strategic national stockpile. But if, say, XYZ Fire Department orders something directly from a you know supplier, he said um, that they are not doing that. Now I know there's been some articles online that, um, that I think Phoenix, Miami Dade, there's some others, Milford, Massachusetts, that their equipment was seized by the feds. He says that's not happening at the FEMA level. And I don't know if these cases I just mentioned, Phoenix, Miami, Dade, or Mil are, are in the category or not, but he said the only thing that might be happening out there is the Department of Justice is seizing fake equipment that is coming into the country. And so I don't know if that's the case with Phoenix or Miami, Dade, or Massachusetts or any other places, but he said that that is the, but he said there is the, he was adamant there's no program at the uh, FEMA level that they're actually seizing equipment coming in the country. So that was that was out of the, the words out of the mouth of the FEMA administrators, Pete Gainer. So uh, I can always do is take his word. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for clearing that up. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's we've we've had probably close to a dozen stories, more than a dozen stories, and and more that we haven't published again, just because we've already seen similar stories. So in order to kind of cut down on that news, um, and you know, I was in New York when when things started shutting down, actually the day that New York started going, uh, you know, closing down the businesses and restaurants. And uh, the next day was when the shelter in place started. Um, I was visiting friends and family and, and I stopped by uh, an EMS squad and uh, to see an old friend and they were actually online ordering um, any sort of facial protection uh, that they could on eBay. Cause that was the only place they could go. And that was like, March 15th or 16th. So that early into it, um, you know, 
first responders who are literally on eBay trying to buy critical supplies, which is just a horrible situation for them to be in. Um, so, Gary, as far as you know, down down the road, um, you know, what, what are what are we looking at? What are what should fire chiefs consider um, for the next three months, six months, the next year, and long term the impact of COVID? And what what are some things that they should be doing? You know, they've talked about a potential um, second wave in the fall. Um, should departments uh, go out and do what the public has done and, and buy millions of rolls of toilet paper with, with, with equipment at this time? Or, you know, what 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 would you suggest? And again, you also come from the EMS provider side, which really gives us a very uh, crucial look at the situation as, as somebody who worked on the streets uh, in, in some tough locations. What, 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 what should we be preparing for and what should we expect in the next year or so? Yeah. So let me, um, let me just address one issue before I launch into that. And that is that um, you talk about ordering stuff off of eBay. Um, one of the things I failed to mention, I, I'm happy to announce uh, that we announced it last week is that the IFC has formed a partnership with Amazon. And okay. this is exclusively not for anybody, but exclusively for our members. You have to be an IFC member. And that is that um, that you can order PPE directly on Amazon with a fire department account. And uh, we tried that out. Our interim CEO, Rob Brown, tried that out. He ordered one box of N95 masks, uh, and he received that within 48 hours at our offices there uh, at, uh, at the IFC headquarters just outside Washington, D.C. So, so uh, that's, uh, again, uh, that's an exclusively exclusive, uh opportunity for just our members, but that's some of the things that we're, do, again, trying to do to help our members out there. Okay. So, so that's, that's good to hear. It is. So the second part, uh, again, going back to your question, is what do you need to start doing, preparing? Well, I I think the biggest, the biggest asset or the biggest commodity you can have out there right now is information. And so we continue to push information out. We continue to push that information to our members and anybody else who's welcome to go to our websites and look at that. And, uh, you know, we are talking about, uh, you know, the everything that you just mentioned, how to prepare for what's coming in the future. And hopefully we don't have a second wave. But if you go back and look at what happened in 1918 with the great influenza back then, the Spanish flu, um, they did have a second wave. And I, and I hope that doesn't happen this time. Uh, and Unfortunately, their second wave was actually more deadlier than the first wave because the virus mutated and all the things they had learned in the first uh, first wave, uh, you know, was pretty much out the door. There's a great book that I bought some years ago that I read and I had to go back and reread it again called The Great Influenza. And it talks about, you know, viruses, uh, you know, back in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, the Black Plague and some of the other things that happened. But it really delves into the Spanish flu which I, I always wonder, how did they get the name Spanish flu? Well, one of the things that happened was uh, most of the governments covered the information up back then. They didn't want to get the information out. And it was the Spanish government that actually released and was very transparent about the flu and what was happening. So the bad part was World War, World War, One, ha World War, World War One happened at that time. And so, you know, the outbreak really occurred in Fort Riley, Kansas, in a con cantonment center there. For, for soldiers, and then uh, 
you know, then we started shipping all these guys over to Europe for World War One, and then infecting all those countries over there. And so, uh, and then just about the time they got it under control, uh, then uh, the second mutation happened, and then they started shipping all those guys back to the states. And so, um, you know, those are the lessons that we need to learn to start preparing for the future. And um, and so we at the local level, the fire departments need to start thinking about and preparing, as they say, chance favors the prepared mind. And so we need to start preparing uh, economically, um, you know, operationally for what may come. And, uh, and you know, how do, how do I operate with less firefighters if necessary? How, how do I supply? How do, what are the issues I need to do to supply? There's a lot of, you know, instead of you trying to invent the wheel, um, I advocate that you continue to monitor the IFC's websites. Uh, that we are, again, pushing that information out. I advocate that you listen to our weekly webinars. We are continually pushing information out because we have experts that are gathering the information for you that you need to prepare for. And so that's what I advocate is continue to monitor what we are pushing out to you. Okay. Thank you, Gary. And then, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier, but there is the specific um, AFG related to PPE, so it's the AFG COVID-19 supplement. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what that is and, and, and you know, what that's for and, and who should be applying for that? Um, is, it, is it areas that have already been hard hit, or do you suggest that um, uh, areas uh, that, that just need to have something uh, on hand, supplies on hand, would would benefit from that to great, you know, greatly. So um, you're talking about the $100 million, Pete? Yes. Yep. Okay. So that was part of the CARES Act. And I think uh, they're, they are going to announce that as open for application this week. We've had good conversations with the grant directorate there. And, uh, and one of the things that we advocate is that that should be just for PPE. You know, we don't one department's going out and buying stairmasters and and using that for uh, you know for your health and safety issues which are important but right now that money should be dedicated towards PPE so that's what that will be functioned for only uh, they already announced it'll just be for PPE so um, yeah the 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 hundred million dollars and, and let me just say this before I launch into that um, we we do not believe that is, that it doesn't even touch and scratch the surface. You know, you look at the police departments; they got 850 million dollars in that CARES Act for their response to COVID-19. And uh, although we so strongly support our brothers and sisters in blue receiving that money, you know, compare 850 million versus 100 million for the fire service, when we are definitely the warriors at the tip of the spear on this battle. So, uh, getting back to the the 100 million again. Um, I, you know, that is open for application, and I, any de any department is able to apply for that, and uh, and so I, I can't remember if it's a match or not a match that you have to. I think the match has been waived. I think uh, that where usually there's like a match where you have to pay like 25 percent or more. I think that's been waived. Yeah. Um, the other, don't get that confused with the other AFG programs and safer programs that are currently open also. Um, and I would advocate that if you're applying for the current SAFER program, I think which is open for application, there's a match with there, that uh, there's a box there that you can check a hardship waiver. And, uh, and, and I advocate the departments, I don't know of any fire department that has not been impact, impacted economically by this. So I would check the, 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 
the the hardship waiver there and uh, make sure that there's that there's no match because we're one of the things that we're telling Congress and the legislators and the staffers is that um, these future programs, if we get AFG and Safer Grants, the five billion that I'm requesting in both those programs, there cannot be any match. In fact, what we call the you know the major fire organizations, the IFC, the IFF, the NFPA, and the National Volunteer Fire Council, the Congressional Fire Service Institute, we've written a letter. Uh, to the president requesting that future uh, and current uh, AFG and SAFER programs that they waive the match. And I saw the the Maryland delegation, again, led by Steny Hoyer the other day, actually, they all joined in a letter to the president also advocating that those matches be waived. So so uh, these are all issues that, again, are impacting us. But get back to your question, Pete, uh, certainly apply. There's $100 million there. I would certainly apply. We uh, have talked to the grant directorate. They're going to expedite that process. We think that they'll be able to award starting in early June and get money back to the fire departments back in early June. Oh, that's great. That's that's a great timeline. Okay. Okay, and then as we kind of start to wrap up here, Gary, um, what what should departments do? Should the second wave happen? You know, and again, coming from the from the chief side, from the IFC side, and the EMS side, what what should departments be doing now to prepare? I mean, is there additional training that that you know we might be looking at as far as what departments need to address? Is it really just focusing on uh, hygiene and, and and decontamination and and the proper PPE? Um, and what about you know, for instance, the ambulances? I know some departments have created a COVID ambulance where everything is kind of sealed in the in the uh, patient compartment, um, but what would you suggest uh, that departments do uh, as they prepare for this potential second wave? So I'm glad you kind of brought that up, Pete, because uh, there's a third task force that I've appointed. It's headed by Chief Tom Jenkins out of Rogers, Arkansas, and there's a lot of chiefs on that also. And that's the best practices innovations uh, task force, and we're looking at all the tons of information that is coming out out there and what is a good practice and do this, do that, you know, all just all the information. How do you sort through all that? So we're actually kind of compiling that and they're putting a compilation together of all those best practices and innovations. And so we plan on publishing that. But I, I think the answer to your question is we need to learn on what worked in your department uh, prior to this and what didn't work. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard all in the COVID-19 task force. I saw some pretty innovative things out there, too, where uh, I saw it actually on Firehouse's website where uh, I think it was the Oklahoma City Fire Department, Oklahoma Fire Department, not only Oklahoma City, but they put an SEBA bottle on a paint sprayer and put some type of disinfectant in there, and they were going around and spraying, you know, some of their materials. You know, in my department, we bought an electrostatic sprayer uh, that we were actually uh, – going around and decontaminating our stations and our equipment. You know, I've saw departments uh, that are actually testing firefighters before they walk in the door and looking for a temperature scan to see if they're running a fever. Um, the list of things that I've seen go on and on, you know, as far as innovation and best practices, uh, but I think it all comes down to this. It's about protecting our people. It's about making sure they have the right equipment on the N95s, the gowns, the face shields, the goggles, the booties. You know, my department has actually bought um, the, uh, what do you call them, the frogs or those like sandals that might, that once you come back in off a call, 
that you come back in, you swap back into your frogs and you walk around the station with those instead of bringing your shoes back, walk, yeah. tracking that back into the station. So we've propped doors open so that people don't have to reach and uh, grab door handles, you know, which is a multi-surface, multi-contact uh, opportunity for someone to transmit disease. So hand washing, you know, just basic tenets of how we protect our people. And so I, I to answer your question, it comes down to learning what we've already learned, including those innovative things that departments have done to start preparing us for the next wave. Hopefully it does not come. Okay. All right. Gary, thanks. Um, and then any advice for, for fire chiefs? You know, this, this is certainly a tough time to lead the fire service. Um, so what advice would you offer up to company officers and, and chief officers to help kind of lead the charge and, and for members to stay positive at this time um, when, when so much is going on and, you know, they're worried about their families at home and at the fire station and, you know, trying to keep morale up despite, um, you know, the situations that we're facing. Um, you know, this, this isn't just a, a local incident where you're wondering what's going on, you know, a thousand miles away or a hundred miles away. It's, it's impacted pretty much every community in this country. So any advice that you would share um, from one chief to another, you know, a former company officer to another company officer about keeping uh, or just about leadership in general, keeping the members uh, motivated at this time. Yeah. And that's tough during this time because um, I, I, uh, you know, it's, it's about resiliency and it's about mental wellness. And, um, you know, when you look around, you know, you, some firefighter um, who's not only fighting, you know, are not, uh, I'm sure not say fighting fire, but some firefighter who is working in the department may have a side business. Maybe his wife or family member has a side business. You know, when you start adding all these things up, you know, it starts to work on your mental capacity. And, uh, and so resiliency becomes a big issue during this. And so, it's important that we have those uh, mental health and wellness programs out there to keep our people healthy and uh, mentally strong. And, uh, you know, my guys, uh, you know, to their credit, they, uh, they uh, set up a ping pong table, at, which has never been happened before. They set up a ping pong table out in the bay there at, at one of our stations. And they actually have tournaments now and, uh, they actually have brackets and all the other stuff going on. They're, they're playing ping pong and, uh, and, and to keep their their minds focused on something else because uh, we've virtually limited training, you know, group trainings because we're trying to do social distancing. And uh, we're, we are in that state where, uh, you know, what do you do? Well, run volumes are down. So what do you do uh, to keep firefighters' minds occupied? And so you got to find those programs like what my guys have done with, uh, with the ping pong tournaments and the brackets and, um, and it, it really helps with the morale. I, I see, you know, the attitudes there. And uh, but we also have a strong peer support program in place that it's available to those firefighters who need to talk to somebody who need to deal with these issues. And so my advice to chiefs are um, let your firefighters be innovative to keep their minds occupied uh, and also make sure you have strong uh, training, health and wellness and mental programs in place, whether it's peer training or some other type of program. Or peer, yeah, peer counseling. I'm sorry, I said peer training, peer counseling. That, that's that's good. We uh, we just did a podcast with Jeff Dill and a few other folks about the mental health aspects of 
what's going on. And um, I think, you know, that's critical. We've had a lot of feedback on that, uh, that that's going to be something that really needs to be addressed. Unfortunately, uh, FDNY just had a, a suicide in their EMS uh, side uh, of a young member who graduated from the academy in February and was only on the streets for two months before he took his life. Um, mm, so it's terrible. It, it, yeah, it, it's something that's going to need to be addressed, um, and and that's that's again, I think that's part of the long term, short term and long term. But uh, uh, you know, understanding this, there's been a lot of separation of families for you know folks who've been quarantined. The firefighters have been quarantined, um, or just you know working numerous shifts. I read a story the other day about another New York City E. Um, I think she was an EMT or paramedic and. So she's stayed away from her family because she was in one of the busiest uh, neighborhoods for Corona. Um, and her concern was bringing it home to the family. So for almost a month and a half, she's been staying away from her family and staying in a hotel. Uh, and, you know, we've heard about that about numerous folks of, of firefighters staying in cars at the station or on the street just to avoid coming home and potentially contaminating families. So the long-term effects on that, the mental health side is going to just be, uh, really tough to chat, you know, to, to happen, to see what happens and unfolds, uh, but mm. to really make sure that members are taking care of each other there. Um, okay. And then Gary, is there anything else that we, uh, we might've missed or anything else on behalf of the IFC that you would like to share uh, with everything going on with COVID or, you know, anything else that, that IFC is working on that uh, maybe not COVID related, but that the fire service in general should know about. Well, um, yes, there are, what I want to talk about is that we are um, actually, um, again, we are speaking with Congress, we're speaking with staff, we're speaking with the administration about the need economically, what the fire service is going to need going forward. Um, and I will tell everybody, at some point there is going to be a call to arms where we're, you know, we're hoping that some of our supporters in Congress will put some legislation in the bill that supports what we're talking about for our programs for AFG and safer. And, and that then we are going to ask for a call to arms that firefighters, fire chiefs, chief officers, that you start calling your members of Congress, your senators, your representatives, and start telling them what we need, that they need to support this legislation. They need to hear from you. Um, there is a lot of noise up on Capitol Hill these days. I assure you that everybody and their brother is screaming, for their needs and what is happening in their own industries and professions. And so um, we got to rise above that noise as a fire service and our congresspersons up there need to hear what our needs are. And so I would add, ask that everyone please watch for that. And uh, we are going to do a massive call to arms. Well, please let us know what we need to do as far as getting that information out. Um, you know, Gary, we're 100% behind that. and you want to help rally up the troops for that. So um, we're here to let us know what we need to do. Um, we will. Thanks. I'll be in touch, Pete, definitely. All right. Thank you, Gary. All right. Uh, well, again, I just want to thank Gary Ludwig from the IAFC, uh, president of the IAFC, uh, also fire chief in Champaign, Illinois, uh, for joining us today. It's, it's a lot of information going on, but I think, you know, Gary, you, you said it perfectly, right? Right now, the biggest, the biggest commodity is information and, and really the correct information. Uh, so I, I'm glad you took the time. We're recording this on a weekend morning, so I appreciate you taking the time out of your weekend to, to um, share this information with our audience. Um, 
it's good to hear from you know what we'll call the top at this point on a national level um, to really help the U.S. Fire Service understand what's going on and what they need to know. So, uh, so thank you so much, and uh, we'll we'll have uh, some links for what Gary's talking about here in the podcast on the podcast player page. You can find that at firehouse.com/podcast. And everyone, stay safe. And thank you, thank you, Gary. My pleasure. At MSA, your health and safety drive is to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as an athletic gear for firefighters, Athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your turnout gear. Get the full story at msafire.com globe.